thank you so much. One final thought, uh, your church is absolutely beautiful, and I love it here, and I love this pulpit. And uh, All right, enough of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll obviously have a lot more to say about that here in just a few moments. You know this as the great love chapter of the Bible, and Hallmark has made a fortune off of this chapter of Scripture. So let's read it, what it has to say, and then I'll have some comments to make through the sermon today. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 1. The Apostle Paul says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, watch this, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long. Love is kind. It does not envy. Love does not parade itself, it is not puffed up, it does not behave rudely, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it thinks no evil, it does not rejoice in inequity but rejoices in the truth, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail, whether there are tongues, they will cease, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now in part, but then we shall know even as I am also known. And now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Father in heaven, as your people, we pause before you this day to acknowledge you as our king, our creator, our redeemer. Your name is majesty. Your glory surpasses all. Your kindness and your mercy to us has overwhelmed us. And by them, Father, we have been made your sons and your daughters. You've made us your servants. And Lord, I pray this day that you'd help us as your people to listen and to hear and to heed your word. God, you'd conform us to the image of your beautiful Son, Jesus Christ. That, Lord, we would not just be redeemed by him, but we would be shaped by him, we would be commissioned by him, we would be empowered by him. That, God, you would be at work through us, your people, your church, to advance your kingdom, to proclaim the name of your Son, and to watch redemption fall down from heaven to the broken and to the lost world. Give us the disposition of servants. Help us, Lord, as your church, as your people, to hear your instruction from this chapter of Scripture. We pray that, God, you would do the things in this time that I can't do, no matter how much I study or pray or prepare or how eloquent I might be, Father, that your Spirit might fall among us, that you would work in our hearts and our minds to make us like Christ your Son. We give ourselves completely to you. We ask you to work and do these things in Jesus' name we pray.
1 Corinthians chapter 13, what's it all about? This is the great love chapter of Scripture, and as I said just a moment ago, this is the chapter that we think of when it comes to romance, Valentine's Day, or perhaps weddings. Those who will go to seminary and study the New Testament and the Old Testament will often critique and pick on those who will read this passage of Scripture in those contexts. What they will say, rightly so, is that this is a chapter of Scripture devoted to the behavior of the church. And they're right about that. But let me just say this in defense of the weddings and romance and marriage. Of course you can read that passage of Scripture in those contexts because it's about love generally and generically speaking. And so if there are ever contexts in which it does apply, certainly those are the contexts where it might. Be that as it may, however, back to the critics of what they're wanting to say here. Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, despite being known as the great love chapter and something we think of and are associated with all of those things, it really does have a context. The context of chapter 13, this is not rocket science, watch this, is in between chapter 12 and chapter 14, right? Chapter 13, notice, is sandwiched between chapter 12 and chapter 14. Well, here's the question, what is the business of those chapters. In other words, what is it that the Apostle Paul is saying in chapters 12 through chapter 14? Well, in short, if you know anything about the Corinthian letters, you know that this was, these were letters written to a church, the church of Corinth, that had deep-seated problems. We have 1st and 2nd Corinthians in our Bibles, but 1st and 2nd Corinthians are actually the 2nd and the 4th letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. He actually wrote four letters We don't have the first one, nor do we have the third one. What we have is the second one and the fourth one, and we call those 1 Corinthians 1 and and 2 Corinthians. So all that to say, he wrote four letters. This was a problematic church. And when you read all of the stuff in those letters, you can see all of the details of what they had to deal with. He was constantly dealing with this church that was prone to division and prone to dysfunction and prone to sin. Now in chapters 12 through chapter 14, he takes up a particular kind of sin that was prevalent in the church of Corinth. The the sin of pride and division that comes with pride. Let me set this up. Chapter 12, the Apostle Paul gives us this beautiful metaphor of the body of Christ. He says that this right here, not the building, but the group of people here that call itself Hardy Baptist Church... This church, this body, is precisely that, a body. You have a hand and a foot, metaphorically, and a head and a leg. You have an ear and a nose and an eye. And collectively, the body, with its individual members, comes together to form one whole. And each individual member, though distinct from the others, has a unique role to fulfill within the body of Christ. And the beauty of the body of Christ is this, is that when all the members function together and do their part, In unity, the body as one executes its mission. Metaphorically, what he's saying is that every last one of us in this room, a part of this body, have responsibilities that are different from each other. But the point of those responsibilities is not to elevate one over the other. Rather, it's to bring all of them into submission to Christ and collectively for us to give ourselves for the cause of Jesus Christ. That's how it's supposed to work. But... If you've ever studied autoimmune diseases, here's what happens. Sometimes the body begins to attack itself. 
the immune system begins to attack, for example, the nervous system or your skin or your hair or something. And when the body is dysfunctional, the individual parts of the body will begin attacking other parts of the body, disease, sickness, dysfunction, and sometimes, yes, even death comes to the body when the individual members attack itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that's precisely what was happening in Corinth. There were different gifts in the body, and some people with the different gifts thought of themselves more highly or more significant than other members in the body. Specifically, there were two groups of people in Corinth, evidently, that thought of themselves as better than the rest. Those who spoke in tongues and those who had the gift of prophecy. Yes, they knew that that some had the gift of faith and some had the gift of understanding and all those things. But specifically in their mind, it was those who could speak in tongues and it was those who had the gift of prophecy that sort of thought that they were the creme de la creme, the best of the best and the most important of all in the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul, listen, in chapter 12 through chapter 14 rebukes such dispositions and such arrogance. Here's the irony. This is the great love chapter. Hallmark's made a fortune off of it, right? It's actually a rebuke. For all practical purposes, chapter 13, the love chapter, is a rebuke. Now, just to understand, I'm not here to rebuke you today. That's not my point at all. I, everything I hear and know about this church is it's wonderful and it's glorious. Look, here's a, here's a unique situation. Here's a group of members that start with about 150 people that get a new pastor that comes in four years ago and by his account have been completely on board with doing whatever you need to do to reach this community. Praise God for that. That's wonderful. So this is not me coming to you today to rebuke you, but it is for me to come to you today and hold up the primacy of love within this body. He's rebuking them in chapter 12, he's rebuking them in chapter 14, and right smack dab in the middle of it, chapter 13, he holds up for them the way it's supposed to look, the way it's supposed to function. What is it that should should sort of define the relationships and the functions of this body? One simple word, love. If you as a congregation will love Christ first, and each other second above everything else, look, you're going to face problems, you'll hit bumps in the road along the way, but I promise you, you do those two things, everything's going to be just fine. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, let's walk through it. First thing I want you to see in 1 Corinthians 13, verse number 1 through verse number 3, I could say it a lot of different ways, but let me just say it this way. The Apostle Paul gives us the mandate of love. Now, what is a mandate? A mandate is a command or a charge or an instruction. So when I say he gives us the mandate of love, what what I'm saying to you is Paul commands us, Paul instructs us in verse number one through three to whatever else it would be true of us, whatever else it would be that we do together, that we be a people that love. Now, why so? Here's what he's going to show us in verse one through three. I'll show it to you. In verse one through three, what he's going to show you is this, simple point. If you accomplish everything else in life, you could be a great businessman, you could make a lot of money, you could be very powerful, you could be very popular, you could be very successful in so many different ways, but if you fail to love, you fail, period. That's what he shows us in verse 1 through 3. Watch this. Though I speak with the tongues of men 
and of angels. Time out. Stop right there. What's he talking about? This is why I set it up in chapter 12. Remember what I said? You got these spiritual gifts. There's all sorts of spiritual gifts in chapter 12 that he mentions. But remember, specifically, it was those who spoke in tongues. Now, what are we talking about when we speak in tongues? Remember Acts chapter 2? The apostle Peter stood up on that day with thousands of people there. Thousands of people there. Two to three thousand people come to faith that day, which tells us there's lots and lots more that are speaking there. They come from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, which means they're all there in Jerusalem, and they all speak an assortment of languages. They need an interpreter. There is no interpreter that can interpret all of that. The Apostle Peter stands up and he preaches, and everyone understood in their own tongue. That means their own language. That's how it starts. By the time you get to the Corinthian letters, tongues is morphed into something else. It sounds to the ear today like babbling. It's a heavenly language, it is said. And in this form, you have to have an interpreter. Well, in 1 Corinthians, that's what we're talking about. Apostle Paul says, though I could speak with the tongues of men, that is to speak English or Italian or Japanese, and the tongue of angels. He's referencing specifically those hotshots in the church that think that they're more significant than everybody else. You who speak in tongues, I'm talking to you, he says in verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but listen to this, but I don't have love. In other words, there were these people, and this is precisely what they were doing. The arrogance, the audacity of any person in the body of Christ thinking that they're more important than somebody else in the body of Christ. They may have a great spiritual gift. Good for you. The Apostle Paul says, you're a problem. Watch this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, watch this, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Over there, there's a drum set. There's cymbals in there. Imagine that as I speak to you, some knucklehead goes in the cage and just starts clanging on the cymbal as I'm talking. It would be a loud, clanging, annoying cymbal. Someone should go over and stop him and maybe even remove him from the sanctuary as I do such things. Why? Because that person is a distraction. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's saying to us. You could have a great spiritual gift, like, for example, speaking in tongues. But if you don't have love, you're like that guy over there in the drum cage, just banging away and being a problematic distraction to the body of Christ. So the point of that, no matter what else you may accomplish, no matter what else you may do, no matter who you might be, no matter what you might have, listen, it's all a hill of beans. If you don't have if you're arrogant, if you're obnoxious, if you're cold, if you're callous, if you're sarcastic or you're scornful, if you're anything opposite of love, I'm telling you, you're nothing. And you're worse than nothing. You're a problem. That's what Paul says in verse 1. Verse 2, here's another one. What about you who have the gift of prophecy? <laughs> that was the other group of people that really thought of themselves as higher than the rest. Or you have the gift of understanding all mysteries of knowledge. The theologians among you. The great scholars among you. You're so smart. You're so intellectual. Boy, you really got your theology buttoned up. You know your stuff. Though you have this gift of prophecy, which by the way, translates, we think of prophecy 
as being the ability to see the future because of the prophets of the Old Testament. And indeed, listen to me, about 5% of the time, that's precisely what they did. They looked into the future and they saw something coming. But you know what they did the other 95% of the time? You know what a prophet does? He's simply a preacher. The prophet simply took the Old Testament law and did with it exactly what I'm doing with this right now. They'd hold the Old Testament law up and they'd preach it and proclaim it to the people. They explained it. So the prophet was a proclaimer. So you could be one of these people with a great spiritual gift like speaking in tongues or you could just be a phenomenal preacher. A fantastic communicator. But if you don't have love, quickly realized after I came to faith that God had given me the ability to communicate. I didn't ask for it. I was quite surprised by it. But certainly as I preached and proclaimed, the body of Christ and the spirit of Christ confirmed this. This was a gift that I had. I was called to use it for Christ. I have known some phenomenal communicators over the years that are awful men. And I have to tell you, this is a challenge for me not to let that become of me. So man, I could be the best preacher and the best communicator in the world. I could be a great theologian, a great scholar, a great intellectual. I could be all of those things that people typically look at me and think of me. But if I don't have love, Paul says, I'm nothing. My gosh. Verse 3. <laughs> this one's really surprising. Though I give all of my goods to feed the poor. I mean, I can get, empty my bank account. I've got the gift of generosity. I give all my goods to feed the poor. I give my body to be burned. I'm, I'm willing to lay down my life. But watch this. If I don't have love, I'm nothing. You mean to tell me People can do those religious acts of giving away their stuff and being generous and hospitable and even sacrificing, sacrificing themselves and not have love. Yes, it's for fame and for glory. There's a lot of people motivated by precisely this. Man, they'll make the sacrifice. They'll work really hard. Why? Because there's something in it for them. They want the fame and they want the stardom and they want all the trappings that come with it. The Apostle Paul says if you even do those things but you don't have love it profits us nothing verse 1 through 3 what's the apostle Paul saying to us he's saying this to us you could be everything else you could do everything else but if you don't have love nothing what have you got apply this to the body of Christ now where divisions will always be prone to spring up I hear wonderful things about you. I believe every word of it, but I know the enemy. I know the enemy that attacks me, and I know the enemy that attacks you. He will always look for spots and occasions to spring up amongst you, division and discord and disunity. And let's face it, folks, it's always over something petty. It's almost always over an ego attention. Somebody got patted on the back and I didn't. Somebody got credit for something and I didn't. 
And something happened in the church that's not the way I would want it to be done. And divisions and divisions and divisions will spring up. And the next thing you know, your preferences, your personality, your giftings, and your wants become the drivers. And next thing you know, folks, it's all about us. If Christianity says anything to us, it says this, it's not about you, it's not about me. It's about Christ and his kingdom. What is the antidote to this? Love like Christ loved. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Followers of Jesus Christ, you're commanded to do the same thing. That's the antidote. It doesn't have to be my way. My preferences don't have to be met. How can I serve the whole body better? That is the disposition of the believer. Hey, apply this now to your marriage. The tensions and the divisions, and the quarrels that constantly berate your relationship. Do they not stem? Because one or both, probably both, to varying degrees. Husbands, there's going to be sometimes you act like a real donkey. Let it be far and few between. You know why? Because that same passage of Scripture, Ephesians 5, where it says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, her... Paul says that to you, husbands. You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You, husbands, are called to die. That doesn't mean just, are you willing to take a bullet for your wife? No, of course you'd be willing to take a bullet for your wife. At least you better, you knucklehead. (laughs) I don't know that you're a knucklehead, so I, I retract that. Of course you'd take a a bullet for your wife. But are you willing to wash the dishes for your wife? Are you willing to help with the laundry for your wife? Are you willing to let her pick the choice of dinner? Are, are, Are you willing for her to flourish? You are commanded to love your wife as Christ loved the church who gave himself for her that he might present her back to himself on that day. Which means Christ is in the work of the church of making us holy, discipling her. Which means, husbands, this. If you love your wife, hear me please, you are to be her spiritual leader. Men, you say, I didn't sign up to be a pastor. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, you are the pastor of your home. You are the pastor of your home means you are to lead her. Wives, do you respect your husband? Do you constantly criticize everything that he does because things aren't happening the way you want it to happen? He's not doing what you want him to be doing? I I tell you, once again, just like the church, the anecdote to all of this tension and division that's destroying us and ripping us apart One simple little word. Love. It's a powerful, powerful thing love is. Love has the ability to redeem and restore. Love has the ability to make whole and make new. Love breathes life into dead bones. Love is always the answer. The Apostle Paul, look... 
What he's telling us in verse 1 through 3 is that if we don't love, we fail. We could apply it to the church, we could apply it to our marriages, we could apply it to our relationship with our children. Children, we could apply it back to your relationship with your parents. We could apply it to our civil discourse in this country. We're in a bad, really bad, dark, awful spot and moment where we can't do anything without destroying each other. Where is love? Love does not necessarily mean you agree with anything. It just means that you love. The Apostle Paul shows us in verse 1 through 3, we are to be a people, if anything is true of us, let love be true of us. Why? Because we are a people that have been loved. We are a people that have tasted that love. We are a people that have been redeemed by that love. Verse 1 through 3, the mandate of love. Number 2, verse number 4 through verse number 8. The Apostle Paul now shows us what love is by speaking about the nature of love. In other words, here's what he does in verse 4 through 8. Lest we just immediately give ourselves a pass here and say, oh, yep, you're supposed to love. Got it. Good news, Jamie. I do that very, very well. You see, we'll always give ourselves a pass like that, won't we? Well, we will give ourselves a pass, but we will define love in a certain way. We want to be the lords of that definition of love. This is what love is, and I do it. So sure, you define the terms, you can do anything you want to do. Unfortunately, we don't get to define the terms. He does. And he does. Verse number 4. Now from verse number 4 through 8, the Apostle Paul shows us what it looks like. He describes it for us. Here, he just gives us a list. Let's just go through it for a second. And let's do so wondering about ourselves love suffers long another way of saying that perhaps your translation does love is patient love is the kind of thing that doesn't give up love is the kind of thing that does not say you've done it before I'm not going to forgive you again the disciples were wondering with Jesus, Lord, how many times are we supposed to forgive? Is it seven times? Thinking that was thorough enough? No, that's not it. Seven times seven? No. Jesus said seven times 70. And even in saying that, the point he's making, it's hyperbolic. He's, the point that he's making is to say it's limitless. Hey, let me ask you a question. Since you became a Christian, how often have you failed him? Since you became a Christian, how many times have you, like a dog returns to his vomit, gone back to your sin again and again and again and again and again and again and again? And I could stay here all day. And my question for you is this. Does Christ not still love you? Yes. Is Christ not still patient with you now? Are you a follower of Christ? Yes, followers go where he goes. They do what he does. Love suffers long. Love never gives up. It never throws in the towel. It doesn't say, I'm done. It doesn't wash its hands. It doesn't walk away. It doesn't abandon. It doesn't get so frustrated that it says and does things that have permanent effects. Love suffers long. Hey, look at this next one. Love is kind. Love is kind. 
says. Not love is kind most of the time. It doesn't say love is kind until somebody says this. It doesn't say love is kind under these circumstances, but not those circumstances. It doesn't say any of that, does it? It just flat out says categorically, love is. patient am I? How kind am I? I can be a real jerk. I can be a real jerk sometimes. And that's not Christ. Love does not envy. Now that one seems odd. I mean, what's wrong with wanting something that somebody else has? What's wrong with being a little jealous or a little envious of somebody else I don't know let's go back to the very beginning of the Bible Genesis chapter 2 don't eat the fruit Genesis chapter 3 they ate the fruit the curse comes Genesis chapter 4 their offspring Cain and Abel both make an offering to God Abel's is acceptable to God and pleasing to God and Cain's was not Cain grew jealous then what did he do that's right he killed him he killed his brother why because of envy It's a harmless little sin. It's an acceptable little sin. It's one that I dare say the vast majority of the body of Christ today will give themselves a pass with. And let envy remain, but envy destroys. This is why it's in the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's donkey. Is the point, how do we apply that today? None of us have donkeys probably. No, but you got houses and cars and jobs and money and fame and children that behave a certain way or don't behave a certain way. And envy, it's human nature to want to do it. Love, here's what Paul is saying, that's not love. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not braggadocious. It's not puffed up. It doesn't like to strut. Love doesn't like to show off. Love doesn't like to make sure everybody knows, hey, I'm somebody. It's not love. It's the opposite of love. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Look at this. This is kind of the opposite of, uh, another way of saying the same thing with kindness. Love does not behave rudely. It doesn't say sarcastic, snarky things. It doesn't tear people down. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not, listen to this, here's, If there is a statement in this that really captures the essence of what it is, it's this next one. Love does not seek its own. This will always be our disposition. This will always be our tendency. We will always, until we go to the grave, have to fight the tendency of putting ourselves very first. That's what's happening in the body of Christ when we're dysfunctional. That's what's happening in our marriages when we're dysfunctional. It's all about me. It's got to be me. I'm first. My concerns are what matter the most. No. Listen, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, we are to esteem other people's needs more important than our own. He says in verse 4. And then in chapter, in verse number 5 through the rest of verse 11, He says, therefore, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
who being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took the form of a servant, taking the form of a man and humbling himself to death, even death on the cross. Now what's that all about? Saying this. Paul's point there, while there are some wonderful theological truths about how Jesus Christ is there, his point is to say, see what Jesus did? He was God and yet he humbled himself, made himself nothing and a servant and was willing to die for others. You, believer, let that same mind that was in him be your very own. Love does not seek its own. It's not provoked. How quickly we say, well, that's just the way I am. I'm Irish or something like that. I have a quick temper. Well, you know what? That might be the way that you are. But in Christ, that is not the way you're supposed to stay. There's this thing called regeneration and renewal and sanctification that's supposed to weed that out. You're not allowed to say, well, no, that's just the way I am. I'm going to keep it. No, 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 no. It's ungodly. Love does not behave rudely. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. That is to say, it doesn't take pleasure in the fact that other people have hardships come to them that we don't like. It does not rejoice in inequity. It rejoices in the truth. Listen to verse 7. I'll try to move quick here. It bears all things. That is to say, love is, is another way of saying it's, it's patient. It's enduring. Love stands beside people. Love not only stands beside people, listen to me, love is the kind of thing that will cause us to roll our sleeves up and get our hands dirty. Love is the kind of thing that will cause ourselves to go that extra mile. Love is the kind of thing that will cause us to be tired and weary because we stand with people in their brokenness and we walk through it with them. That's what love is. We bear up each other. Love believes all things. What does that mean? That's an interesting one. Here's the thing. Here's what happens with most of us. Tension or a possible disconnect happens between you and one other person. She did this. Here's what we do. We do not give people the benefit of the doubt and we immediately think the worst of them. We interpret them in the worst possible ways either because of our own fears or our own appetites will cause us to interpret people in very bad ways. And we don't give people the benefit of the doubt. What Paul's saying here is that's not, that's not love. Love is the kind of thing that believes all things. Look, I, love would be the kind of thing that would cause me to believe the best of you until I absolutely enforce that I can't believe that anymore. I give you the benefit of the doubt. I don't automatically assume that your intentions were malicious. I don't automatically assume that you were up to something. I don't automatically assume that you dissed me. I, I just think the best of you until I have real reason to think so. Love hopes all things. To say it wants the best. It endures all things. Verse 8, love never fails. Verse 1 through 3, here's what Paul is saying to us. There's a mandate for me to live that way right there. As a follower of Jesus Christ, as a child who's been redeemed by his love, I'm called to let that right there, verse 4 through 8, find a fleshing out in me. Verse number 8 through verse number 13. Last thing I want you to see here very quickly. 
The Apostle Paul speaks of the greatness of love, which he's already really hit on in verse 1 through 3, but he does it again in a different way in verse number 8 through 13. There's this play on where we are now, immature, partial perspective. We don't really understand everything about God this side of heaven. We're not certain, certainly not complete and mature. But then we, we will be with Christ one day and we will be made known. And we will see and we will be fully and completely matured. What Paul is saying to us in verse number 8 through 13 is on that day when Christ comes back. On that day when we are known that way and know that way. We will see what's really, really valuable and what's really of interest. Illustration. On the Titanic, the story is told that there were obviously millionaires and billionaires that boarded the boats. When at the beginning of the trip, those big diamonds in the earrings and the necklaces and the bracelets were worth a fortune to everybody on that boat. If you'd ask anybody on that boat, those diamonds, those rocks, would have been things that you'd throw yourself overboard for. They would have been things that you would have given everything you had to have those diamonds. By contrast, a few little oranges or a few little apples are inconsequential. You'd gladly knock the apples off the shelf. Those apples mean not much to you, but those diamonds mean everything. But then they hit an iceberg. The ship begins to sink, and there's a moment of terror and panic on the ship. When everybody realizes that it's going down, they're out in the middle of the Atlantic with nowhere to go, and for all they know, nobody around them, they're going to freeze to death or starve to death. In that moment, those diamonds are worth nothing to anybody on that ship. Those oranges and those apples, which were once inconsequential, become extremely valuable. There are certain days, there are certain moments in life that really clarify things, don't they? That really make clear to us what's actually important and what's actually not that important, aren't there? There are moments like that. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through verse number 13 is a day is coming when we will see what's really genuinely important. Christ will come back. We will know him even as we are known. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I understood like a child. I thought like a child. He's referencing his stages of immaturity on this side of heaven. But he's talking now that there's coming a day when he will be like a full-grown man. A day of maturity when he will put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, he says, verse 12. But then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known, verse 13. And when that day comes, here's what we're going to say. Of everything we've said and everything we've done, now abide faith, hope, and love. In other words, when it's all said and done and the dust settles on my grave, when your heart stops beating that last time on that day, you know what's really going to matter? It's not going to be how much money you've had. It's not going to be how successful you are. It's not going to be your position, your station, your titles in life that you've held. What will matter is that you had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you had the hope of his kingdom that is coming and that you've lived your life for that hope. You have loved him and your fellow man. Now abide faith, hope, and love. When all is clarified and we can see 
reality for what it really is. Now abide faith, hope, and love. These things. And now watch what he says. The greatest of these is love. Church, marriages, friends. We can come up with all sorts of ways to destroy ourselves, can't we? That's precisely what Paul was dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. A church as dysfunctional as it could possibly be, constantly looking to destroy itself. The antidote is love. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know where you're at. On a church level, on your family's level, you personally, I don't know what challenges you face, what bumps in the road you have hit. But what I do know is that the love of Jesus Christ is the answer. As men and women who have received that love, we are now to let that love be deeply and fully infused within us so that it may now emanate back out from us. Father in heaven, Give us our pride, selfishness, ego, hubris. Forgive us, Father, even as your children who know better. Forgive us, Lord, for loving ourselves above everything else. God, would you bring a real, genuine sense and season of repentance to our hearts as you conform us to the image of your son help us to taste every day fresh and new your great wonderful love to us let us bathe in it let us drink from it let us be nurtured and shaped by it and then lord we see people around us that are broken we see people around us that are less fortunate we see people around us that don't look like us sound like us, act like us instead of jumping to judgment and condescension Father may we remember the love that we have in you and the call on our life to now give that out Bless us with this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're here today, and I don't know what's on your heart, what's on your mind. But if you need to respond to the Lord today, would you do that? Let me offer a couple points. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I know Pastor Scott would say this. We are thrilled you're here. We love that you're here. We want you here. You are so very, very welcome here. We want you to know our Christ because we found in him life and love and forgiveness and redemption. Here's what you need to know. You're a sinner just like me, just like him. And that in your sin, if you die in that sin, you will spend forever separated from God. But God so loved you and me that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins. 
You'll turn from your sins and throw yourself on the man Jesus Christ who will forgive you and make you his son or daughter. We want to pray with you. Would you come forward during this time as we sing? Pray with one of these pastors in the front. Let them walk you through this and explain what that means. Maybe you want to grab them at the back door as you're leaving this class. Second, maybe you're here today and something that I've said, something that we've considered together today has really hit a nerve. You just need to pray. You need to repent. You need to check yourself or renew yourself. Would you come forward and pray? I don't know what you need to do today, but as we stand together to sing, would you respond as the Lord leads?